Renew campaign. Our Renew campaign is our phase one of our capital campaign that we voted to enter into uh, earlier this fall. And uh, there's some new information about that in the fireside area. If you don't know what that is or don't remember what that is, uh, make sure you refresh your memory by going by there, picking up a pamphlet. If you uh, haven't turned in a commitment card or, or committed to, to pledge or, or, or give to, to that project, you can, you can pick those up there as well. Another thing I want to do before we get into uh, the message this morning is just spend a moment in prayer. Uh, many of you know and love Dwayne Jansen, and you know that Dwayne's uh, health situation is, uh, is just extremely grave, and the family's been called in. And he's been under hospice care for a couple of weeks. His wife's been taking great care of him as well. Uh, but he's at the very much at the end of his life. And so I just want to pray for uh, the Jansen family and also pray for uh, Ellery Sandwick. Uh, Ellery's just two weeks old, and uh, she's had a sustained fever for the last couple of days and has been in the hospital. And so we want to lift her up uh, as well. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll uh, dig into his word. Father, we, we love you. We thank you for your love for us that's demonstrated in the person and work of Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross for us and gives us life eternal. Lord, we recognize that Dwayne is on the very precipice of that eternal life, and he wants to go home. He wants to be with you. And uh, so, Lord, we just ask that you would act um, graciously and mercifully in that situation, that you'd comfort, give strength to the family. Uh, But, Lord, in these final hours, Lord, they would put their hope in you, that Dwayne uh, would, would hope and rest in you, God, we thank you that uh, he's not in pain, uh, but simply awaits uh, taking his last breath so that, that he can spend eternity with you. Lord, on the opposite side of that, we pray for Ellery and uh, this wonderful new life that you've given the Sandwick family, that you've given to our church. And we just ask that as she deals with uh, what's likely a virus or something of that nature, Lord, that it would run its course and that um, the care that she's being given at the hospital, Lord, would would help in, in strengthening her little body, and God, that she'd be able to go home and be with, be with her family. Lord, uh, we thank you for the Sandwicks, and we thank you for the Jansons, uh, and we pray that we as a church can come around them during this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 10. We're to the 10th chapter of Mark. Double digits today. That's good. Um, so we'll be starting in verse 1 here in just a second. In the mid-20th century, there was a Harvard sociologist, a guy named, and I'm going to have a, have a hard time with this name, Patiram Sorokin. Here's his picture. He's a real guy, Patiram Sorokin. He wrote a book in which he sounded an alarm about the impending disintegration of American culture and civilization. Pretty dire subject. And the central concern of Sorokin's book was the rising rate of divorce and the breaking of the American home between the years 1910 and 1948. He pointed out that in 1910, 10% of U.S. marriages ended in divorce. That number had risen in 1948 to 25%. And Sorokin, speaking as a historian of culture, said that no civilization can long survive when one-fourth of its marriage units are disintegrating. Of course, the situation has grown only worse. Fifty years after Sorokin surrounded his alarm, at the end of the 20th century, the divorce rate had risen to over 50%. Last year, for the first time in American history, there are more single adults than married adults in this country. 
people continue to, to divorce at a high rate. People are cohabitating now more than ever. Young adults are putting off marriage in a way that they never have before. The idea, the whole idea of being married in our culture has lost any sacred position that it may have had once held. And it's showing, is it not? And even though we can look at statistics about divorce in our culture and determine that things in this day and age are pretty bad off, divorce has actually been a hot-button issue for centuries. And that's what we see in our text for today. As we get into Mark chapter 10... We see the Pharisees, they show up again, the Pharisees looking for an opportunity to put Jesus in a tough spot. They're looking to condemn him. And so they bring up a subject that everyone would have had a strong opinion about, and it's the subject of divorce. Now let me say this. I hope this message doesn't give you the opportunity to condemn me. All right? One of the things that comes with preaching through books of the Bible is you let the Bible dictate dictate the subject matter. You don't pick and choose from topics you like or from certain verses that are sort of in your theological wheelhouse or things you think the congregation wants to hear. No, when you preach through books of the Bible, you just preach what you come to in the text. To use a simple metaphor, you deliver the mail. You just deliver the mail. And and only an irrational person would get mad at the mailman for delivering mail that they didn't like, right? Well, today, I'm the mailman, and my intent is to simply deliver the mail. But in all seriousness, seriousness, here's, here's what I do know. The subject of divorce is really hard. And I believe the subject of divorce is really hard because divorces are really hard. And because of the statistics I shared a moment ago... I know that divorce hits every single one of us in this room this morning. Everyone here has been impacted one way or another by divorce. Perhaps you've been divorced, or your parents were divorced, or your friends, your best friends are divorced, or maybe you're sitting there this morning thinking about getting a divorce. Whatever the case, all of us in this room have at the very least bumped up against the heartache caused by divorce. And some of you, some of you, have been hit with that heartache like a freight train. I know this. So my job today is not to hurt you any more than you've already been hurt. My job today is to try to preach what Jesus said about this issue in the most loving, pastoral, biblical way that I can. My duty is to preach what the Bible says about this issue in as clear a manner as possible. That being said, I know that some of you will not agree with all of the things that I say today. Some of you will disagree with it, and that's okay. Because one of the things you realize when you study this subject is there is a wide range of opinion and interpretation about what the Bible teaches concerning divorce. Godly pastors, scholars, theologians, men who love the gospel, who love Christ and his church, they differ on some of the finer points in this discussion. They come down on different sides. And we may come down on different sides today. But my hope is, my hope is that you let the Bible shape your view, whatever view that may be. That you let the Bible shape your view, not your experience or someone else's experience. That you allow God's word to 
exercise its authority on this matter because that is of utmost importance. Because here's what happens on the street level. On the street level, some people will dismiss what the Bible says on this subject so that divorcing people will feel better about themselves. And you know what that? That is not loving. At the end of the day, that is not loving. On the other hand, there are other people who add to what the Bible says to prevent the action of divorce at all costs. And oftentimes, that is not caring, is it? Any human standard may be more lenient than the Bible or may be stricter than the Bible, but it will never be better than the Bible. So today, for Mark chapter 10, I want to tackle the issue of divorce. I will not answer all of your questions today. I am sure of that. That's going to be my chief frustration in all of this. This is not a a holistic overview of marriage and divorce in the Bible. That would take a long time. Uh, It is snowing outside. We don't really have anywhere to go. We could do that if you want, but I'm going to try to get you out on time. So I'm not going to answer all your questions. Neither will I please every person who hears me preach today, but that's never my goal or my desire. I simply want to be faithful to what the Word of God says about this issue. So let's read Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 12 this morning. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And he left there, he being Jesus, and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as, he was, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another... She commits adultery. May God bless the reading of his word. So I've broken this passage down into three parts. A deceptive attack by the Pharisees, a deliberate answer from Jesus, and a definite appendix for the disciples. That's where we're going this morning. But first, I want to talk about the setting. One, because the setting is really important. And two, because the setting has changed. For a good portion of chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are camped out in Capernaum. They'd likely been in the house of Peter. Jesus has been teaching them about the nature of true discipleship, about humility and service and ministry. He's preparing them for their, uh, their, their role as apostles. But now as we transition to chapter 10, we find Jesus, according to verse 1, he's concluded that Galilean ministry. He's left Capernaum. And we find the Lord Jesus beyond the Jordan in an area called Perea. This is an area due east of Jerusalem. You can see it on the slide behind me if, if it gets thrown up there. That area of Perea, there are the Dead Seas at the bottom of the slide. 
just to the west of the Dead Sea, at least the northern uh, part of the Dead Sea is Jerusalem. They have Jericho just there to the north of the Dead Sea. And then east of Jericho, on the other side of the Jordan River, you have that area called Perea. And in chapter 1, when it talks about John the Baptist preaching and the crowds coming out to be baptized in the Jordan, it's in that region, that region just north of the Dead Sea, just east of Jericho at the river at Perea. And so chapter 10 gives us Jesus, gives us the last chapter of his ministry before he goes to Jerusalem for the week of the Passover. In chapter 11, Jesus will arrive in Jerusalem. By the end of that week, he'll be put to death. So we're very, very much near the end of his earthly ministry here, virtually at the end of it. And again, the text says that we find Jesus teaching. A crowd had gathered, and he's teaching them. Teaching is Jesus' primary ministry. Yes, he's a healer. Yes, he's a miracle worker and somewhat of a revolutionary. But beginning in chapter 1, he amazes the crowds with the authority of his teaching. And here, he's providing some teaching on divorce. And it's initiated by what we read there in verse 2. And that's where we get into this morning's outline. A deceptive attack. What do I mean by a deceptive attack? Attack. I mean this. Notice the motive of the Pharisees. The text tells us their motive, that they were testing Jesus. They were not legitimate students of Jesus. They're not looking to learn from him. They want to trap him. When they ask whether divorce is lawful, the real question was whether or not Jesus permitted divorce the way they permitted divorce. They're not concerned with right or wrong here or what the Old Testament really taught. They're looking to pigeonhole Jesus. They want to label him. Again, just as in our day, divorce had reached epic proportion among the Jews of the first century. The Jewish historian Josephus casually in his writings comments on how his wife displeased him and therefore he divorced her. And there were At this time, there were two main schools of thought among the Jews regarding divorce. Both of these schools looked at things only from the male point of view, so that's interesting. But there were two main schools. One, the school of Shema. And Shema was a well-known rabbi who lived a generation before Jesus. And he stated that a man could divorce his wife if she was found to have been physically unfaithful. Sort of a traditional view, the school of Shema. The second school was the school of Hallel. And Hillel had died 20 years earlier. He stated that a man could divorce his wife for any type of indecency. Such indecencies might include infertility, overeating, spinning around in the street so that someone saw her knees, speaking to men, putting too much salt in the food, burning his dinner, even saying something unkind about his mother-in-law or her mother-in-law. Indecency. And here's what you need to know. The majority view in Israel was this Hallel view. The interpretation of Hallel was way more popular, not only amongst the general Jewish population, but amongst the religious leadership as well. The Pharisees held to this Hallel view. So by understanding the two views, you can see how the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. The Pharisees asked this question, apparently hoping that Jesus will take a hard line against divorce. And if he does that, he will therefore alienate a huge group of Jews who are divorced, including them. 
Furthermore, and this is even a bigger point, if this question seems out of place in what, in what has been a larger section about discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus, we sort of have this aside on divorce. You know, why is that there? That seems kind of random. If it seems out of place, you need to turn your attention back to that geographic setting. Remember, they are beyond the Jordan in that region called Perea. Why is that a big deal? Remember, I mentioned that this was the same region that John the Baptist had preached in. Do you remember what happened to John the Baptist? John the Baptist was killed by Herod Antipas. Why? Well, look at Mark chapter 6, if you want to turn there. Mark chapter 6, verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John had been arrested by Herod Antipas. John's crime was that he spoke out against the divorce and remarriage of Herod Antipas and Herodias. In light of that, look at how the Pharisees phrased this question to Jesus. Is it lawful? Same language used in John the Baptist's condemnation of Herod. They're hoping for Jesus to speak the same words as John the Baptist. They want him to be in party with John the Baptist so that Jesus will also be arrested and also be put to death. You see, this is a very calculated move by the Pharisees, a very calculated question. And we know that since the end of chapter 3, they have been plotting to kill Jesus. They want to trap him. Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, seeking to destroy him. So that helps us understand why this conversation is happening in the place that it's happening. But Jesus, he sidesteps the tricky question. He bypasses the prevailing opinion on divorce, and instead, he directs their attention to Moses. He takes them back to the Word of God. The text says, He answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And what the Pharisees are alluding to are a group of verses in Deuteronomy 24. And in that Old Testament passage, Moses he does not command divorce there. Deuteronomy 24, Moses describes a situation, and in that situation, he lays out some rules, essentially so that a woman won't be mistreated when she's divorced. And since the guidelines provided are predicated on divorce, the Pharisees interpret the passage in a way that allowed for and even encouraged men to divorce. So if their wife was in some way indecent, they could write her off and have a divorce. Which is why, in verse 5, Jesus sheds light on why those words from Moses are even in the Old Testament. He says, Moses had to write this because of your hardness of heart. Meaning, you guys think divorce is normative and allowable and A-OK. You've got to know, this is not the way things are supposed to be. You've taken these words from Moses as a method of operation which has given you the ability just to walk in and out of marriages on a whim. So what they weren't comprehending is that divorce is always a result of sin. Always. 
And in this case, they are sinners. They're trying to condemn Jesus for his view on divorce, but Jesus condemns them for theirs. Which leads to the beautiful words found in verses 6 through 9. And those words make up the the second major section of this passage, which is Jesus' deliberate answer. What he drops on them in verse 6 is just big-time stuff. Big-time because he goes back, not to, not to traditions or other rabbis or different schools of thought. He goes back to creation. He doesn't get mired up in their faulty interpretations. He gives them a definitive word about marriage straight from Genesis 1 and 2. And there are three overarching ideas about marriage that Jesus lays down here. First... It's that God created the marriage relationship to be between a male and a female. God made them, the first two human beings, the first married couple, male and female. He did not make a group of people that were free to configure themselves as they saw fit. It was not one man and several women. It was not two men or two women. It was to be one man and one woman only. Any other combination is against God's original design. And Jesus doesn't mention it here, but God's command to this first couple in Genesis 2 was for them to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. The ability to procreate is an intrinsic part of the marriage relationship, which is an idea completely lost on the current agenda to to redefine marriage. Same-sex couples cannot fulfill this command to multiply. And they cannot fulfill it because they fundamentally fail to fit the description of what God had laid down in the beginning. The man and the woman, two physically distinct, emotionally different, generally complementary beings. They're made in his image, both of them uniquely brought together as husband and wife. He made them male and female. That's the first idea. The second idea Jesus gives here is this idea that the male and female who come together, they become one flesh. They leave father and mother, and they hold fast to one another. That phrase literally means that they are glued together. And in this leaving and cleaving, they become one flesh, meaning marriage is not merely a partnership or a working agreement, but the creation of an entirely new being. And what this is, this is the idea of covenant. Covenant just means a coming together. It's a word that appears some 300 times in the Old Testament. So marriage is not merely a contractual agreement or a civil union. It's a covenantal bond. And the difference between a marriage covenant and a marriage contract are absolutely fundamental. You might illustrate it this way. A contract says, you're mine. A covenant says, I'm yours. A contract says, do this for me. A covenant says, what can I do for you? A contract says, what do I get? A a covenant says, what can I give? A contract says, I'll meet you halfway. A covenant says, I'll give you every ounce of me. A contract says, I have to. A covenant says, I want to. I found a, uh, and it's always dangerous to read articles on the Huffington Post, but I found an article on the Huffington Post this week, or it found me, I should say. The title of it caught my eye, and I would never choose to live together. OK? 
okay? I'm thinking about divorce. I'm thinking about marriage. I'm, I need to read this article. And I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read some excerpts. Here she describes how her and her husband became engaged. She says, I unwrapped the paper and saw a blue Tiffany velvet purse. Then David knelt before me and presented me with a sparkling diamond ring as he asked if I would marry him. But my first words after his proposal were not yes, as you might expect. My first words were, I don't have to live with you, do I? <laughs> no, he said. And with that, I accepted his proposal and wrapped my arms around him. I couldn't wait to be his wife, but living together was absolutely out of the question. She goes on to describe the arrangement. We live separately because if we live together, it would ruin our relationship. Society and many of our friends and family might have expected me to give up my independence and my routine, but what society doesn't realize is that we'd ultimately give up our relationship if we lived together. David will admit it himself. He's complex. It's his way or no way. I can cope with that trait if I don't have to live with it, and I'm sure I have traits he'd rather not live with too. I wouldn't want to change David, and I love everything about him. But if we lived together, we'd quarrel, and then we'd either have to change, or we'd have to break up. And, and I just married him. Breaking up is the last thing I'd ever want to do. She kind of lands here. She says, David can be who he is, I can be who I am, and we can do what we do best. Laugh, have fun, enjoy each other. We're not dragged down by the day-to-day -day problems of life. We're always delighted to see each other and don't get annoyed by the little things that can weigh a relationship down, like tea bags in the sink or an overflowing trash can. We don't fall out over anything. I can't remember the last time we squabbled. We're not holding on to our independence. We're holding on to our relationship. Our marriage works just perfectly by being apart. Not oneness. Not sacrificial service here. Oneness isn't taken down by tea bags in the sink and overflowing trash cans. There's just nothing in human existence like the bond of marriage. It is utterly unique, so unique that it's the only suitable metaphor the Bible uses for the love that God has for his people. Paul employs the marriage metaphor in Ephesians 5, calling the church Christ's bride. James calls sin in the life of the believer an act of adultery against God. The Old Testament prophet Hosea and his unfaithful wife Gomer, they're intended to portray a vivid melodrama of God's relationship to the nation of Israel. And then, then, the final scene in the Bible. What is it? It's a marriage supper celebrating the eternal bond of Christ and his church. There's nothing else like it. If you're married, you are one flesh with your spouse. That is why marital strife is so, so difficult. The person you get at odds with is as much you as you are them. This is why divorce is harder to cope with than a death in the family, because that one flesh union created through the covenant of marriage is killed. It's not just a relationship that's ended, something has died. We have a third overarching idea in Jesus' deliberate answer to the Pharisees. And it's that marriage is a work of God. Look at verse 9. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is a work of 
God. Therefore, to destroy, diminish, or amend marriage is to interfere with something God has built. John MacArthur writes, It was God who made the union possible. It was God who issued the command, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. It was God who said, It's not good for a man to be alone. I'll make a helpmate for him. It was God who brought Eve to Adam. It was God who designed marriage to be an honorable state. Every marriage is God putting a man and a woman together where there is a covenant union, God is involved. Who wants to undo a work of God? Jesus very wisely here stays away from the trap of the Pharisees and honors marriage in a way that they had completely pushed out of their minds. If they were to take Jesus' words to heart, these Pharisees would have to see their mistreatment of marriage and how it makes them profoundly guilty before God. And so that's where the discussion with the Pharisees ends. Jesus didn't say what John the Baptist said about Herod and Herodias. He didn't say that. He didn't use those words, but he said even more. Which leads to the third section of the passage, what I'm calling the definite appendix. Verses 10 through 12 are an addendum to the discussion that has just been had. And Jesus saves this addendum for only the disciples. The disciples, they're now away from the crowd, away from the Pharisees. They're gathered in a house with Jesus, and they need clarity on what he's just said. They ask Jesus to explain himself, so he gives them some very plain teaching. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Very straightforward teaching there. And here's where you start running through the whatabouts. Well, what about... Or what about, or, or, or what about, and I get that, I, I anticipated that. If Mark chapter 10 was all we had on divorce and remarriage, there would be no what about. But it's not, so there is an exception or two to accommodate the what about. So let's talk about that exception. The exception is adultery. What about adultery? Is that grounds for divorce? Well, if we go back to Matthew chapter 19, that's the parallel passage to this one. It's the same scene, but Matthew's account. Matthew records that Jesus said some other things that Mark did not record. Verse 9 of Matthew 19, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, the word there is porneia, points to sexual sin, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So, to divorce in the case of adultery, according to Jesus, is legitimate, and if you divorce for the cause of adultery, you are free to remarry. You see that? That's the exception, or what's called the exception clause. You say, well, is that something only Matthew recorded? Is, is this at all debatable? I don't think it's debatable, because that's what Jesus had always taught. Go back to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, verse 32. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual sin, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman without that reason also commits adultery. So what Jesus says in Matthew 19 is the same thing that he said in Matthew 5. The only grounds for divorce in divine revelation is adultery. Divorce is not God's will. God hates divorce, as he says in Malachi, but in cases of adultery, it can be carried out. And here's another thing to keep in mind. Adultery can lead to divorce, but it doesn't have to. 
there's always a place for restoration. There's a place for forgiveness. And that can happen in cases where there's genuine penitence and repentance and remorse, a real forgiveness, and, and the pattern of adultery has stopped. So it doesn't have to result in divorce, but we pray for restoration. We, we pray that it doesn't, even though we know that it can. But where there's continuance, however, where there's a lack of repentance, where there's a continuation of adultery and sin in that way, that's precisely why this exception for adultery is given. And that's to be determined carefully and prayerfully, and every case is so complex and, and, and it has to be handled pastorally. But the overall point is this, where the grounds for divorce are biblical, adultery, there's grounds for remarriage. That's that's the point. There's one other exception given in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of being married to an unbeliever. And if an unbeliever abandons you, nothing should stop that divorce from happening. And if it happens, you're free to remarry. That's, that's the only other exception. Now, as I conclude, you may have noticed that in all I've said thus far, I haven't really talked about love. Isn't that strange? A sermon on marriage, and I haven't mentioned love. Why is that? Well, usually when we talk about marriage, we do talk about love, but that just isn't the way the Bible talks about marriage. And that's because love isn't romance. Love is way beyond Hallmark cards and candy hearts. Uh, Love isn't primarily something you feel. Love is a demonstration. Love is bleeding sacrifice. And this is where I want to land the plane today. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, no, no. He was in agony, and he looked down at us, denying him and abandoning him and betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in, in history, he stayed on the cross. He stayed. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He loved us, not because we're lovely to him, but to make us lovely. He's the perfect spouse. He's the perfect spouse because he's the perfect model of sacrificial love and humility. He can be hurt and betrayed, yet he refuses to go anywhere. He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives without concern about getting anything in return. Tim Keller says this about marriage and the gospel. He's written a book called The Meaning of Marriage. I commend it to you. I don't recommend a lot of marriage books, but I'll recommend that one. He says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. I'm going to read that again because that's a really profound thought. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear but to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Let me close with this. Perhaps you've had a divorce and you know that it wasn't biblically justified. 
perhaps your remarriage was adulterous and you know it was the wrong thing to do. Perhaps you failed to seek physical or emotional oneness with your current spouse. Your marriage just isn't glorifying God. There are all kinds of sin that swirl around the marriage covenant, and that's because marriage is made up of two sinners. Makes sense. I tell pre-married couples, you always marry the wrong person. You always marry the wrong person. And that's because we're all the wrong people. We're all deeply affected by sin and selfishness and pride, and it makes sense that sin would show up big time in marriage. You know, sometimes it shows up in petty selfishness, sometimes it shows up in unfaithfulness, but it shows up. But whatever your category today, married, divorced, whatever, know this, believe this, none of our sins are beyond the grace of God. None of them. Certainly not this one. His grace extends to all your failures. The blood of Christ Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Remember, love is sacrifice. Jesus gave his life on the cross to cover your sins, whatever those sins may be. And if you're a believer in Christ, you are his bride. He's established covenant with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Even when you are unfaithful and faithless, he is patient and he is faithful. And outside the realm of marriage and divorce and adultery and unfaithfulness or whatever, if you've never looked to Christ, the patient, faithful, long-suffering love of Christ that he holds out to you, if you've never put your trust in Christ, do that. Do that. As unlovely as you may be, he will not leave you. He will not divorce you. He will not sever the relationship. But he will love you into loveliness. And he will take you into eternity where he will never separate himself from you. You can do that today. Where you sit, as we pray in a moment, as you go home today, as you read the scriptures, you can put your trust in Christ and it will be an eternal relationship established. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you that you give us such practical words in scripture. There may be not words that we like, there may be words that are hard to apply or even difficult to interpret at times, but You give us to them because you love us and you want to uh, take care of us and you want us to flourish and we flourish when we're obedient and in relationship to you. Lord, if there's anyone here that needs that relationship, 